Welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I am so glad that you all have come along and many of the people who are my audience are needing to hear the message that you're going to have on today's podcast because it's critical for this moment in the kind of pan-Wesleyan movement. So hold on. You'll get more of that in just a second from our guests. But I want to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are developing trusted leaders for faithful churches. And at this particular moment in Methodism, we have added 300 global Methodist church pastors to our student body. We are at the biggest moment in our history, and we sense God doing a new thing through the life of not just this, this institution, but the churches that we're privileged to serve. So we'd love for you to check out more about us from any of our degree programs, from bachelor's, master's, doctoral degrees, to our lay initiatives. You can find out um, find out about those at wbs.edu. Also, this podcast is brought to you by Bill Roberts, who's a financial planner who comes alongside people, particularly pastors, and helps them think about their retirement, something we don't do very well. So I'd love for you to check out his resources at williamhroberts.com. And finally, if you are not signed up for my email list, I'd love to get you to sign up for that. And I send regular content out. And if you sign up for my email list, I'll send you a, a little tool that I've de developed called Five Steps to Deeper Teaching and Preaching. It's a 45-minute teaching that I have together, but then a worksheet that you can use that will help you prepare, not just if you're a preacher, but if you're preparing a Sunday school lesson or anything like that. And Often, people are looking for some way to get deeper into scriptures, and that starts kind of on the front end as we're studying. So I'd love to send that resource to you if you sign up for my email list at andymillerthethird.com. That's andymillerii.com. Okay, I am thrilled to bring into the podcast Tom Rainer, who's the CEO of Church Answers. If you've been around to the church world for any time, you have seen his name, and if you haven't, you should have, and I'm glad to introduce him here to you today. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, sir. This is going to be fun. I, fun for a lot of reasons, but I'm not going to define them right now. I'm going to let you define them through the questions. But even though I don't have the preloaded questions, even though I don't know what you're going to ask, I know something about your audience, may not a whole lot, and that's why it's going to be fun for me. So let's just see what happens. Well, that's great. You know, what? one of the real treats for me in developing the podcast over the last couple of years is finding an audience and developing an audience and serving an audience. And my audience, as you know, as I told you in our email exchange, is made up mainly of people in the pan-Wesleyan movement, groups that would connect themselves to John Wesley and his theology, um, You know, not just United Methodists and Global Methodists, but Free Methodists, Nazarene, Salvation Army, and a host of any denomination that has the word Methodist in its name. And this is an amazing moment in the life of that movement, particularly because of what's happening within United Methodism, as churches have disaffiliated, uh, some churches have lost disaffiliation votes, and churches are being planted from those contexts. Um, other denominations are growing, Free Methodists, Association of Independent Methodists, Congregational Methodists, all of these denominations are a part of this. I, I actually think it's a moment of revival and awakening within the life of Methodism as a whole. But at the same time, Tom, that's led to a lot of people, I think, needing your resources because we have generally been an Episcopal system uh, where we, most of these denominations are such so that the denomination owns the property, sends a pastor, and takes care of the congregation in that way. But now 
they're having to call pastors. Now they own their property. And now there's this unique opportunity for them to be able to think about what it means for them to exist as a church. And some of them are really struggling. So I'm curious, let's just imagine what it might be for there to be a church that has disaffiliated. Now all of a sudden they're trying to figure out who they are. What, what, what would you say to them in this moment where they're kind of forging an identity? There's a temptation for many of these churches, whether they are global Methodists or anybody else that has a new opportunity, but I'll focus specifically upon the global Methodists. There's a temptation to make all of the structure and the ministration flow smoothly, and it has to. It absolutely has to. I mean, Global Methodist denomination has chosen their their uh, retirement uh, company. They have chosen other resource providers. So that that's happening at the denominational level, and it's happening at the local level too. Where okay, we we didn't have to do this in the past. We now what do we have to do? Here's here's my encouragement. My encouragement is to begin with the Great Commission. Is yes. that which should be your priority? It is there, there are so many things to do when you are part of a new denomination. And I would encourage many global Methodists, let's don't go into, say, 2.0 for your yes. new paradigm. Let's go into a new vision, a fresh vision. And that vision, if it does not begin with the Great Commission, that is going to fall by the wayside. So this is an opportunity for all of these congregations to say, we can do a lot of things right, but let's just follow the example of Wesley, the example of Christ, and let's go and make true disciples through evangelism. And that, to me, if you start there, everything else will eventually fall into place. If you don't start there, everything else will stumble because you're not starting at the right place. What was Jesus' last words on earth before he ascended? You will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. He, he, he did not say, let's decide polity, let's decide, that's been decided. <laughs> he, he, he did not say, let's decide how many committees we're going to have or how we're going to uh, find deferred maintenance in the future. Those are important. But he said, first thing you got to do is be my witnesses. And that's how the early church got started in Acts 2, 42, 47. And that's my admonition to Global Methodists. And, you know, I told you before we started recording and we had a conversation, we're working with a number of Global Methodist congregations. And yeah. it is it, when I say working, we're doing consulting, providing resources, a number of different things. But it is really, really fascinating. And I would even use the word fun because... Mm. They're, they're, they're looking for they're, they're looking for fresh vision. They're looking for fresh ideas. And yeah. the, at least the congregations with which we are working are way open. And, and when we talk about conferences, they are open as well. So I am excited when, when, when I read the mission statement of uh, Global Methodist, one of the things that just jumps out at me is the part of the mission statement that says we're going to passionately share our faith. And that's that's what they're about. If they can live up to that part of the mission statement, they are 90 percent there. That's why I'm excited about this movement. Absolutely. I think I got a little little over exuberant. So I'll shut oh, I love right. that. That's exactly why I want to have you on. It, I, this past fall, I didn't anticipate this in my own schedule, but I became almost a circuit riding uh, Methodist pastor where I was going all over Mississippi, um, probably to a dozen congregations that had either broken away that or some that had lost their disaffiliation vote. And Tom, you'll find this interesting. There's a few times um, I was there the very first Sunday they had broken off. They, like oh, wow. they lost their vote the next week, their their congregation, or they were voting that day to join a denomination. But here's what's interesting: the 2.0 factor, as I call it, 
was very present. So even then, th th this is crazy, Tom. I would come into a place and th this would be a church that was one week old. Here's what they would say. Well, we've never done it that way before. <laughs> no, you haven't done it anyway before. So start new. <laughs> it's like, this is how we do it. Uh, and at one time I was just, I mean, I just came in to, to preach and um, I was ready to do all that I can, maybe give a pastoral prayer. But then they looked at me and said, well, aren't you going to come do the children's sermon? Well, aren't you going to pray for the offering? Uh, all that say that there are, what can happen is habits that are part of the past can creep in. And I am afraid that some of these congregations might miss an opportunity to position themselves for the Great Commission. What can they do to avoid that, Tom? Well, first of all, they need an awareness of the possibility. So okay. just, just stating this is probably what's going to happen. A lot of these congregations, whether they're global Methodist, disaffiliated United Methodists that are waiting to make a decision or whatever the case may be, many of them do not realize that that is a common disposition. That is a common default position to do things the way we've always done them. And I, one of the things we encourage churches to do when we work with Global Methods or anybody else, we, we get them to ask the question, if you were starting afresh, what would you have to do according to Scripture? And, mm -hmm. and of course, within the bounds of, of uh, your, your denomination, polity doctrine, assuming that fits well with Scripture, too. <laughs> That's right. so that, 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 is, that is where we begin. Uh, and I, I gotta, I'm going to divert just a minute, then I'll come back to your question. Uh, we're, we're talking about the different situations. Most of our situations with Global Methodists have been so positive, and I'm not going yeah. to suggest this one was not, but in the midst of a consultation, a rather in-depth consultation, not going to even give the state, the 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 someone called for a vote for disaffiliation. It's a United Methodist Church that intended to uh, eventually become a global Methodist, and so someone called for for the vote. And I don't remember, you know, all, all how that happened. But I'm in the middle of a consultation. They have the vote, and the vote to not disaffiliate. The vote to disaffiliate. Let me put it that way. Yes. Was fifty percent plus two people. Wow. So. The vote failed. As you know, was it three-fourths yeah. or two-thirds? Three-fourths? Yeah, I need uh, 67%, whatever that is, two-thirds. Yeah, That's two-thirds. Th two so the vote failed. So I'm doing a consultation with one church. The next Sunday, only half of them are there. Right, right. And so now I'm doing a, I'm, I'm doing a consultation with a United Methodist church that has no desire for the most part right. to, to change from that. And those that were working for the change are now gone. So... Just to let you say, if that don't call me if that happens, because I don't know how much <laughs> help that can be if I, if the church has changed right up from under our feet. Yeah, and no. their staff their staff was cut in half too. So uh, the United Methodists had to jump in and appoint these these persons to other places because the local congregation could no longer afford their services. Oh, uh, anyway, back back to what what it, tell them. Awareness is the first key issue. Yeah. Um, if, if this sounds like a shameless plug, I, I don't mean for it to be, but at Church Answers, we started doing research about three years ago about what's happened to churches that have had an intentional restart. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that they replant their churches. It doesn't mean that they disaffiliate, though they may, but an intentional restart. And we tried, we tried to find the common characteristics of these churches as they said, we want to be the church that God has called us to be. Let's throw all of our presuppositions aside. Let's get out our Bible and let's let's make those decisions. Well, we followed many of those churches and we followed them for two years. And there was a common theme in that. One was they came together for prayer 
that resulted in people being reached in the community. Hmm. They were mm-hmm. intentional about praying for the non-Christians, praying for those who weren't followers of Christ. Yes, yes. And yes. we used what we learned, and we started a ministry at Church Answers called the Hope Initiative. Hmm. And it's it's basically 30 days. You have a challenge, whether it's seven or eight of you in a group with a pastor, whether it's the whole church going through it, you have a challenge for 30 days, and you go through that challenge. And we have seen that 30-day jumpstart just do some phenomenal things in these churches. I mean, within, I don't want to over oversell or over be exaggerated, and I don't want to speak hyperbolic, yeah. but we've seen so many churches, whether they use our resource or whether they use the principles behind it, have this 30-day jumpstart where it get, it changes their culture, it changes their focus, and because we call it the Hope Initiative because it changes their posture of hope as well. Mm-hmm. So we are using that in, in, in a few thousand churches right now wow. to jumpstart, not just not just talking about Global Methodists, but there are a lot of other oh, yeah. nations and non-denominational churches that, uh, that uh, could, could use this as well. But that's the opportunity that all these churches has have. I mean, that have no matter where, where they are in the process, no matter if they figure out which denomination or any denomination where that where that which would be a landing point for them. Yet it's easy to come to a place where they're not one of these. Instead, the identity, my fear, this, and I can I've seen it happen. I've been in these churches in the last six months that it might end up being their identity is in what they're not. Right. That okay. Mm-hmm. So we're not United Methodists anymore. We're not there, and so we are the home for the Orthodox Evangelical Wesleyans, and that's who we are. But there's something key missing in that. You know, like it's missing uh, the Great Commission. So the Great Commission, exactly. You, you're, you're, you're not an Orthodox church if you are not a Great Commission church because you've chosen to yes. disbelieve a major portion of Scripture. Amen. I've been interested to see that some some of them are often really thinking like, okay, all of our people live over here, you know, as we're figuring this out. So we're going to land in this spot, but they might miss that chance then, like, of really reaching their community to really say like, and, and to do these type of things. And my fear is then they'll end up they'll end up being dead, and that's where your your book uh, Autopsy of a Dead Church. Uh, believe it or not, like I think there's a few of these churches that might just need to. Um, read that book to figure out if they are indeed dead. Tell, tell us, uh, that's been a really helpful book for me um, as I've uh, helped churches see where they are and what they can do. Um, is that is that a real possibility? Or do you think that's something that might need to happen too at this moment in Methodism, that some churches just need to realize they're they're dying? The, the reason that I wrote all types of deceased church was because I wanted them that aren't dead yet to be able to face reality. Why do we do autopsies? Well, we do autopsies typically the first answer is to determine the cause of death. Why do we want to know the cause of death? Well, we want it to be prevented in the future. Uh, yes. If it's something within the family, something something that is preventable, we want to do so. So I did autopsy of the deceased church by interviewing church members, former church members of churches that already closed their doors and pastors. And I said, tell me about your church. Tell me about your former church. I even had the opportunity to tour some of those churches. And I went behind chain link fence that were bolted shut. And we went into dusty buildings and it was just 
it, it, it was just a scene of what can happen to a church if it does not look to the future. I mean, talking about we're, we're going to do 2.0 or we're going to do uh, the way we've always done it. That's like walking forward while turning your head backwards. You're going to mm-hmm. run into something and ultimately you're going to get hurt. And I wrote autopsy because I wanted churches to see, I wanted leaders to see that if you continue on the path that you've always done it, you will go to the path of decline and ultimately closure. And that's, that's the reality. And as you know, post-COVID, post, we, we, post-pandemic, we, we, we are seeing more and more churches close. As a matter of fact, I'm going to give you some data that we have not released yet. We will release it in, um, I know we're releasing it in a webinar in February, late February, I think, but we'll be releasing it. So your listeners are going to get a little taste of, of the data. Uh, we're, we're looking at Moribond churches. Now, Moribond church is a church that's almost dead. Okay. We've been looking at churches that died. Now, can we go to the Moribund churches and have an intervention potentially where they don't die? And it's yes. many times it's deemed impossible, but it's not. It really mm-hmm. is not. And so here, here's what we have discovered. We, we, we see churches go from health to unhealth or lack of health to Moribund, which is the precipice of death to closing the doors. And that closing the doors may be a literal, we're shutting the church down. Maybe we're selling it to the building to a secular or make company, or it may be that another church takes over and replants it. But the church, as you know it, is closing the doors. Here's what we see. There are 300, I'm going to go with 375,000 Protestant churches in the United States alone. Wow. Out of those 375,000, if what we have seen in our research plays out, of that 375,000, 100,000 will close their doors in five years. Wow. So we're, we're, we're talking about 30-ish percent, 28% of all churches. Now, do we predict that will happen? Not necessarily, because we think that some intervention can take place. But that is the path more than, more than one out of four churches are on right this moment. Mm. Wow. It- well, I heard an interesting story of a church in North Carolina that had disaffiliated from the United Methodist Church and started using your book. And they realized they thought maybe that that disaffiliation would turn things around. Well, it didn't. And just in the first few months, they realized they had some other problems. Um, and so they went through your book and they realized they were pretty much dead. And they were more they were a moribund church. Moribund. That's more, not a term I'm used yeah. to. So M-O-R-I-B-U-N-D. Got it. Okay. So they really, that was who they were. So they took your advice. Like you said, you know, the, some of the last pages of your book says, you know, sell the property, give the money to another Christian ministry, um, combine with another church, give your church to a church in that community, a church that's wanting to be planted. But so they started to look around for a church that could take them over. And that church came in on the, on the front of their church. It said, um, no skateboarding. No, no, uh, no biking, that sort of thing. So then another church came in and they said, uh, we want to make this because it's right across the street from a high school. That's why it had the no skateboarding sign. So this other church wants to make it into a skateboarding church. (laughs) That is, that is fabulous. Did they, did it work? Well, I think they're in the process right now of, uh, of voting through that, voting through it, but realize like, this is who, this is who we are. Now I, I actually look at that as a, a beautiful moment to use the capital assets that have been developed as sad as it might be to accomplish the main goal, which is the great commission. God established that church and his power and his strength and his will 
when it was founded to be a lighthouse in that community. Unless the community no longer exists, which is unusual. I'm talking about any community. Every now and then it'll go all industrial, but it's unusual that the, there aren't residences around to some extent. There's still supposed to be a lighthouse in that community. And mm. I, I would love to see moribund churches or sick churches or you know, I, I think one of my team members got the URL churchmortician.com. And, <laughs> and if I'm not mistaken, that forwards to church answers. I don't know if I really want that because I'd rather talk about new life instead of death. But uh, if we study death, we can study the causes of it. The greatest medical breakthroughs have come through autopsies. Mm. Why not the greatest church breakthroughs come through learning what happened to dying and dead churches? Yeah, and I love in that book how you help people see that if they're if they're dying, there still is a possibility, but it does mean dramatic intervention. It does mean dramatic change. What what is it? I know this isn't a there's probably not a clear answer, but what is it that stops people from really pursuing that dramatic change? Right? In your experience, is when you confront them with this information, like this is what it's going to take for you to not die. What what stops people from taking those steps forward from really? Well, there, there's there's a two level issue. The first is the common issue with change. Uh, one one of the books that um, I wrote with uh, Eric Geiger called Simple Church. We oh, we, yeah. we, we we talk about uh, people who've had heart conditions who will not change, even though the doctor said if you lose weight, if you if you if you do this exercise, and it's all minus, if you do these things, you will live. If you don't, you will die. And I don't remember a percentage that we stated, but it was a high percentage ultimately choose to die. So the the first thing that we got to realize is that change is not inherent in the human person. It is it is not something that is natural. It is either greatly human pushed or God pushed one one of the way. So we're dealing with the overall issue of change. You know, when Cotter wrote Leading Change many years ago, you know, he, he was dealing with that at the business level, at the corporate level. I wrote a simpler book because I'm not nearly as smart as he is called Who Moved My Pulpit about change and, and what mm. takes and what takes place there. So the first level is change is not the natural disposition of a human. So we like routines. I like routines. I sleep on the same side of the bed. And it may be because I'm in a routine or it may be because my wife won't let me have the other side of the bed. But either way, I sleep on the side of the bed. I usually travel the same path to most places I go, even if there's a better path, because I am in a routine. So you're dealing with that first level of just a disposition that pushes against change. But you're also dealing with a deeper level when you're talking about churches. Mm. Many of the things that church members resist have become in their minds and heart points of sacred holiness. And in, in other words, they've, they've almost become icons. They've almost become something that is that is really not biblical, not worthy of worship. But because they have done it in their church, they feel like that this is the way church is done. Mm -hmm. So second thing that can really help these churches, and we've, we've tried to push them uh, in this direction in many situations, is to go visit three or four other churches that are healthy mm -hmm. and see the difference between a healthy church and your church. We recently did that uh, uh, in a church in North Carolina, and they went to see another church that we knew was healthy uh, for specific issues. And they were blown away. So, mm. so you know, th those are some starting points. Start with the Great Commission. But even before you start with the Great Commission, you have to come up with 
dealing with denial and dealing with reality. Yes. That's really helpful. And I think people are, I'm, I'm surprised at how often people have been in a church their whole life and they don't, don't know anything else. Um, and, and I grew up in a church in the Salvation Army where people wear uniforms or wore uniforms to the church. And as beautiful of an external witness that that can be, it often has become a sign of something that's internal and, and something that is mainly about preserving, can be about preserving a certain culture. So much so that it was meant to be kind of an external uh, evangelistic tool, probably in its origins, but sure. people will often and, and there's a I say this because there's parallels to other church traditions. People sometimes will come into the Salvation Army, put on their uniform, go go into the sanctuary, and then take it off before they leave, right? And so what is that? I mean, that that says something about the nature of what it's doing. It, it's a internal piece as opposed to something that's meant to bring people in. And sadly, it can become like a um uh a, a club membership almost. So like those yeah, type and, of things are very present. And and I, I will say that in the last 60 days, the the most caustic criticism that I have received, and many, many, of the, many of the criticisms that I get are deserved, so I'm not suggesting that, was when I just simply did a very simple article on who's passing the offering plate now, post-COVID. That's, that's okay. all it is. And, and I guess I implied by not pushing against it, that it's okay if you do not pass the offering plate. I'm a part of a church that does not have offering plate or bag or basket or anything. The gifts can go in a box, but 90%, 92% of our church gives online. Sure. So so I just suggested that. He went ballistic. I mean, it, it was 1,500 words. I hope I'm not ah. exaggerating. It was long, okay? It was okay. long. And he... Boy, he went after me about the offering and, and how it's such a sacred moment. And wow. it can be, but it, it's, it's not the offering itself. It's the heart and the disposition of generosity and giving that is the sacred moment. Yeah. Tom, I, I jumped right into the Global Methodist Methodist moment. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what your own tradition? I imagine you served the church at some point. You haven't always just been serving consultancy or working through advising people. Just t tell us a little bit about your background. I have a weird background. Oh, um, good. More I, interesting. Uh, I grew up in the United Methodist Church. Okay. Till I was uh, 13 years old. The church had a doctrinal split. Back then, now wow. we 50 plus years ago. So the church had a doctrinal split back then. Uh, the church I went to, I think, was called Southern Methodist, if I recall correctly. Uh, I don't even know if they're still around. But then that church had another doctrinal split because it was they were still arguing. So at the age of 13, I told my parents I wasn't going to church anymore. Okay. They had trouble persuading me otherwise because of what I'd seen and witnessed and, and the, the infighting and the the bitter things and the families that were divided. And I could go on and on on that. So I went unchurched from 13 to 22, okay. which I should not have done. I know that, but I, it's, it's, it's been a great benefit for me. Even though it's a long time ago, I saw for almost a decade through the eyes of an unchurched person. I went back to church uh, when I got married. One of the stipulations that my bride put upon the marriage vows was we're going to get in, we're going to get in church. I was a believer. I was an unchurched believer. 
And so we got back in church and I got, I was part of Southern Baptist tradition for some time. I'm now, I'm now in a non-denom church. So, you know, I've kind of, I've gone from, I've gone from diff- different areas, but my background is this. I'm a fifth, I was a fifth generation banker. I grew up as oh. a, uh, in banking finance degree, uh, uh, along with my master's seminary, started on the MBA, didn't finish the MBA, but started on it. And so love the business world. From there, I pastored four churches and okay. uh, I did go to seminary. So uh, that included six years at seminary. I'm a very slow learner. And so I spent six years there and got a couple of degrees and uh, pastored four churches, Indiana, uh, Florida, Alabama, and I'm missing a church in Indiana, Florida, Alabama. I'll, I'll remember it in just a minute. So it's quite I, I, a, jumping around quite a bit there. Uh, it's all east of the Mississippi, though. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky. Okay. The, the the first two churches. The first one was called Hopewell Baptist in Indiana. The second one was called Hopewell Baptist in Kentucky, and they were both on the border, so they were like thirty miles from each other, Indiana. So wow. Anyway, I'm confused. Uh, four four churches. Uh, at one point I was called to be a Dean of the seminary from where I graduated. Okay. So I went into the world of academia like you are, and I served as a Dean for 12 years. So about a dozen years while I was a pastor, I started doing accidental consulting on the side and I just helped churches and it kind of evolved. There's a story to that. While I was the dean, I was more, much more intentional about being a consultant because that's one of, in the world of academia, as you know, if you can write, you can consult. There are things that are encouraged, uh, particularly in the world of side gigs. And so I developed a practice that I was about to take solo. I was about to leave the seminary because I got to the point where I had to make a choice. So mm-hmm. instead of making a choice, I was called to be the CEO of the largest Christian resource company in the world, which is Lifeway. Yeah. So I went and headed up a company that had 5,000 employees and learned a lot about big corporate, even though it's Christian, the, the big corporation. I stayed there 13 years. Wow. I finally got to do what my dream was, and I retired a little bit early and started Church Answers. And that's that was that was my intention at seminary before I mm-hmm. went to Lifeway. That uh, my wife and I had already worked on all the legal work. We were ready to move. We we're going to move from Louisville, where we were at the time, to to Florida, and uh, we were ready to go. And two things happened. She developed. Uh, she was diagnosed with very serious cancer. She she survived. So okay. praise God for that. And yes. then then secondly, Lifeway contacted me, and so my plans were changed. I I kept trying to go solo, independent. So now now I have a small company. We have about twenty one employees. It's you know, it's not the big, big corporation I was part of, but I'm loving every minute of it. So that's how church, that's how church answer started. That's really helpful to hear. And you work with your son as well. We we said that before the call, and I know you've written some books with him in the past, right? He's the president of your, of church answers. I've written, I've co-authored with all three of my sons. Oh, forgive me for, I, I know, I only knew, I, I see the last name together there. So I hadn't realized that. So tell me well, about we them the- real quick. Well, uh, Sam is the eldest and he, he's still a pastor in Bradenton, Florida. Okay. Doing an incredible job, but he also serves as president of Church Answers in the co-vocational world. My son, Art, is CEO of a company he started called Christian Money Solutions, hmm. uh, ChristianMoneySolutions.com. And uh, the big thing that they have done is uh, they they have started a resource. There are others out there, but they've started a resource for churches to use to learn more about how to be good stewards of the money. 
uh, it's not quite the same world as say Dave Ramsey, but there's similarities that are there. Yeah. So, so uh, he's CEO of a Christian Money Solutions, but he gives me ten hours a week at Church Answers. Okay, so I get that from him. Then Jess is my youngest son, and uh, Jess is a pastor. Sam's a pastor as well, and uh, he gives me about 10 hours a week as well. I'll have them in specific roles. So when we have our staff meeting, always by Zoom, we're all virtual. Uh, when we have our staff meeting, you have the two owners on there, me and my wife, and you have the three sons, and then you have about 15 or 16 other people. Wow. So I get to be with my sons either virtually or in person on a regular basis. My youngest son is my pastor when I'm in Franklin, which is in the Nashville area. Okay. My oldest son is my pastor when I'm in Bradenton. I split time between the two. Oh, what a, oh, I love that. I'm going to pray that something like that can happen from my life. When it I is the greatest, story. the greatest joy, the greatest joy. And you mentioned that Sam is a bivocational. I mean, maybe they're all working in a sense bivocationally. I think that's one of the shifts that's going to have to be made too in the global Methodist or in this new Methodist moment. Let's just say that as people are no longer just being assigned a pastor who's just going to come their way. You know, preachers come, preachers go, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Like, And they've allowed that to be the driving force for how their congregations develop. And it might be that some of the smaller churches aren't in a position to have people come in and uh, who are, what what you know, so many churches are reaching out to us now at Wesley Biblical Seminary saying, we need a pastor, we need a pastor. And generally, here's what they say. They want somebody who's 42 with a, 2.5 years, 30 years experience, 2.5 kids. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And what are they doing? They're going to the past. Now, let me distinguish something. I know we're running out of time, but let me distinguish yeah. something. I would, I would, it would help if churches understood the distinction between bivocational and co-vocational. All right. Tell me about that. Yeah. But Bi bivocational is typically financially driven. In other words, you cannot pay someone full time. That's the, that's the driving force. And that's why you have a bivocational. The other alternative is co-vocational, and it's where you intentionally go into the world and look for people who may have a call to ministry, but not a call out of the marketplace. And so they do both. Uh, Jimmy Scroggins at Family Church and uh, the main campuses in West Palm Beach, I think they now have 14 campuses. Mm -hmm. And most of their campuses are have a pastor who's co-vocational, like one is a physician, and there are others. So these are people who say, I'm called to be in the work in the marketplace, but I have a sense of call to vocational ministry. Is there a place to do both? And it's not a financially driven decision. It is a ministry driven calling. Okay. That's helpful. I haven't heard that distinction before. So that it's not in those situations, would the compensation be minor from the church in light of that? Uh, Typically, it is. Typically, a physician is not going to take a big paycheck uh, from the church. But that person has a certain sphere of connections that would be very appropriate for the context of that community. Gotcha. Speaking of pastors and calling pastors, all of a sudden, there's this interesting moment that I've already talked to dozens of churches that, who have never, never selected a pastor before. Oh, yeah. And all of a sudden— Wait, Waiting for the appointment. Yes. Here comes the appointment. Who's next? I need my Baptist friends. Please come help us. Tell us how this works. Congregational friends, how does this work? Give us some advice. Give some of these churches advice about what they should be thinking about uh, as far as a process and leading to a place of, um, of finding a new pastor. First, I would be very careful in getting too much advice from existing systems because they have the same issues the way that they've mm. always 
And many of the, whatever you call them, pastor search committees or whatever process, even elder boards calling calling pastors, the, the, there tends to be the, the old way that we've all, always done it. And the way that we've always done it is we're going to call the seminaries, we're going to get resumes, and we're going to take six months to go through 100 resumes, and we, we may find one out of that. So I would be very, very cautious about doing a search that way. If I'm doing a search, I would ask the question, what is the culture and the DNA of this church? And how can we find that person? There's a different answer to many of those. Now, methodologically, you may have a leadership group in the church that's going to find it. But don't do it the old way where you're just culling through resumes and listening to someone preach, which is the way many and other traditions have done it. And based upon that, you call a pastor. You got to find someone that God has called in that culture, in that context, in that community, that at least in your own power and God leading you, you can understand that person will be a fit. Yeah. So the the weakness is it's just finding a good preacher and thinking that's all you need, right? That's maybe they will be a good preacher, but is that is that a trap that some congregational uh, systems fall into? Mm-hmm. And part of the trap is many of these uh, leaders, many of these pastors describe their calling as a call to preach. Mm-hmm. It is, but it's a lot more than that. Right. It's a call to evangelize. It's a call to shepherd. It's a call to be a pastor of the community. So there's so many other things to look at. So yes, the default position is now let's go, let's go online and listen to 15 pastors, find, find a sermon we like, and let's go after that one. Mm, interesting. Well, that's, that's really helpful. I, I find that people are really in this moment confused. Now, some of the de- denominational systems will help, uh, will provide resources, but sure. in general, they're they're by themselves, like they're having to figure this out themselves. And I just say, praise the Lord. You have an amazing opportunity. Don't blow it by just missing, by just going back to a reflex that might not be healthy. We can learn from people like you along the way. Let me just well, get one, one, other one, last, one last thing I'll say oh, to that. Then I'll shut my mouth. Uh, don't overlook the possibility of calling from within. That has oh, happened more yeah, yeah. and more. And you, there, there may be someone that you say, boy, if they ever went into ministry, they would be an incredible pastor. Well, you yes. know, what? that might be the person you call. And it may be bivocational, co-vocational, or it might be a traditional full compensated pastor. Don't 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 leave that out. And then you can send them to Wesley Biblical Seminary, right? That's right. That's right. They probably go online. It's you know that's that's so often been the case. We've heard this story many times. Um, so as the Global Methodist Church has emerged, they've changed. This is a, one of the beautiful things that they've done. They've changed the nature of their credentialing. So you used to have multiple layers of credentialing, but they've moved it to have simply an elder and a deacon. And in order, the educational requirements. Um, are facilitated like through a seminary like ours, where you take 10 classes at pass fail to be a deacon, and then another 10 classes if you want to be an elder. Well, in the, we've had um, 400% growth in our seminary because of this program. It's it's an amazing moment. And in some of the classes that I've taught, I had I I can point to three stories that are just what you said, where the maybe the church lost their vote their disaffiliation vote, and then the next week they start a church and they don't have a pastor, so they've just recognized the gifts that God has given to people there. One is, one is um, a beekeeper who's also a school counselor and now is trivocational, um, is also a preacher and was in my preaching class and did a fa- fabulous job. And 
I, I think it would be, it could have been easy to say, oh, we're going to wait. We're just going to figure out who we can get from a seminary. But maybe that person's right under your nose. Yep. I would not forsake that at all. So what, what I uh, if you have a few more minutes I'd love to just ask you uh, I loved your book I know you've done several uh, becoming a welcoming church um, mm -hmm. I'd love to get just a couple insights there cuz I think as churches are trying to even set themselves up physically like what their their basic structures they're trying to develop websites could you give us just a few of the insights there and I'll just encourage people to go and buy that book if you're in a new moment methodism but could you just give us a little hint of what's what's there some of those things that people at churches aren't doing in becoming a welcoming church? Think of, of um, the Great Commission in different phases, if you will. And I'm not trying to just isolate the phases and make it a checklist of things to do. But the, the first phase is a change of culture, which is an outward focus. That's what we have been seeing and doing with the Hope Initiative. But then the second phase is becoming a welcoming church. Because if you connect with them in the community and they come to your church, and they have a neutral to negative experience, that means the process has stopped at that time. And quite frankly, most churches do not see their congregation from the perspective of a community person who may have little church background or no church background. Mm -hmm. So what we do in Becoming a Welcoming Church is we basically tell them this is what churches have done that have been fruitful. This is what churches have done that have not been. And here's the difference between the two. And we we walk them through it. We do have we do have an accompanying book that is really almost every time we see a cell becoming a welcoming church, uh, that one cell, it's called We Want You Here. And it doesn't have an author on it. I'm the author, but it doesn't have an author. But you give it to the guest. I mm. read a book about how much how glad we are you visited. So yes. we're seeing we're seeing a lot of people just put that in a gift bag and giving it to people in in the church. So that's a, that's a high level view of becoming a welcoming church. It does get granular enough where I think that uh, someone could do that with the book become a welcoming church. At some point we'll have a resource on it, but for now it's the book. Yeah, it's one of those things that you have like um uh the the time the time of greeting you you helped us with that uh, i'll tell you one of these I'm, i know you've heard these type of stories before but i gave your book to a church one of the largest salvation army churches in the in the country but that's a, it, that means it probably has 350 members but i gave it to them because when they came in they had a time of greeting first of all you know and it's it scared all new people but then after that they had somebody go around with a microphone in front of 350 people and said if you're new stand up and then they pointed to him and tell us why you came here. <laughs> well, guess what? You will not see him a second time. We, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> some some of the research we've done on this is just will blow people away. I I, I may have the numbers a little off because I don't have the data in front of me, but I'm going to be close. Seventy five percent of unchurched people do not want a welcome time at all. Do not mm -hmm. want to greet. They I think it may even be higher. But here's 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 the kicker. Over 50% of church members don't want one. Mm, interesting. So even if you're just dealing with the family there, they don't like it. I'm an introvert. My, my idea of fun is going and sticking my head in a corner with a computer screen in front of me for eight hours. So <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm a classic introvert. Yeah, well, I just encourage people to take a look at that book, you know, so you can you think about the people who are coming in, how you can follow up, how you're welcoming them, how you're like thinking about your website. And, and that's the way people are welcome. So there's a lot of resources, Tom, that you've developed through the years that I so much appreciate. And I Thank hope you. people will pay attention to the things that you've said as they're trying to develop healthy churches. 
One reason my podcast is called More to the Story is a, a theological reason because we want to say there's more than just getting our sins forgiven. There's the call to sanctifying grace in this life. But also, I like to think there's more to the story of each of my guests. So, Tom, is there a, is there a hobby you have? Is there more to the story of Tom Rainer? You're on a lot of podcasts and things, but is there is there something that you don't often get to talk about? There's probably good reason I don't get to talk about it because I love college football. Okay. I, I am a college football fanatic, and I graduated from a school that just lost its coach, the University of Alabama. Oh, man. We're, we're, we're seeing the transfer portal become this abyss where we're just losing people right and left. But here's my what you may not know about me, but you really don't need to know this about me. I'm such a football fanatic. I played high school football, got a couple of small college offers, but nothing that I wanted to take up seriously. Knew that I couldn't walk on at Alabama, but I wanted to go to Alabama. So I didn't play for Alabama. Just to be clear to anybody that's listening, don't even hint that I did. But there was a coach named Bear Bryant, and yeah. I was such a fan of him that I selected my apartment on campus right outside the practice field. And the practice field was covered where you could not see what was going on inside the fence. But the bear, as he was called, every practice ascended to a tower to look over. So every day I would get in my lounge chair during football season and I would get my binoculars and I would watch his expressions during practice. Now, that is weird. That is <laughs> weird. Oh, man. that is, that Well, that's a real commitment. So, so what do you think of the... Um... Uh, the way things are realigning, not only you have the transfer portal, you have NIL, we have this uh, upcoming playoff series, playoff set up. And what do you think? Are you wanting to go back to the old ways or what do you think? I'm not about to say I want to go back to the old ways when we've been encouraging church members to look at things. <laughs> things are going to change. We might as well accept the way that things are going to change. And it'll the, the pendulum has swung really much in favor of the players right now. That'll that'll shift a little bit back. It's just it's part of moving forward. So accept yeah. it, move on. Don't whine about it. I, I think your new coach is pretty good. I, I think I, I know you're worried probably with all these transfer portal things, but he's going to bring people into. I think you're going to be okay. You know what? I think we got the best coach other than the one we had. So okay. That's pretty I, good. I really, I really like DeBoer. I like him for a lot of reasons. I like his character. I really mm -hmm. do. Mm -hmm. So that's my opinion. I don't that know. That sounds you're, good. You're, you're Mississippi. Are you a Mississippi fan? Oh, oh no, yeah. I'm. I am a Big Ten person, and that you know pulls me away from a lot of people. My audience. I grew up in the Midwest. Believe sure. it or not, DeBoer was at my. I um. I didn't attend there, but I'm an Indiana Hoosiers fan. He was oh, offensive yeah. coordinator our last time we had a good season. So um. And he took our quarter, Michael Penix, you know, to yeah. Washington. So yeah. I always root for Big Ten, which gets me in trouble down here. But you can't help but follow the SEC situations as they're going around. I thought oh, I thought Mississippi's man was going to come your way. Um, uh, too many bridges burned, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but he he did a great job as offensive coordinator for Alabama. So he would have done a good job, but we knew that he wasn't even on the list. Yeah, sure. Well, Tom, tell us where people can find your resources. What's the best? Uh, churchanswers.com, is that it? Churchanswers.com. And here's where they can get everything free. Okay, and I we, like that. We send, we send a lot. 90% of what we do is free. And okay. never buy a resource from us. 
Use our free stuff. Just go to Tom Ram- I'm sorry, churchanswers.com and just click on that you want to sign up for our monthly, I mean, our, our daily newsletter. And you will get so many resources, not just information, but we give a lot of, we give away a lot of free resources through that. So just do that. We'd love to have them. Okay. That sounds great. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Tom. It's meant a lot to me. My joy. Thank you. Thank you.